0: a story is told of twin boys, one who was an extreme optimist and the other an extreme pessimist. Since both boys were absolutely extreme in the way they responded to things, they were taken to a psychiatrist for treatment. The doctor put the extreme pessimist in a room filled with shiny new toys. But the boy refused to play with the toys. Much to the doctor's surprise, that extreme pessimist little boy looked at all the toys and began to weep, thinking that if he touched one of them, he might break them. The other boy, the extreme optimist, was put into a room with a pile of horse manure. And that boy, who again was an extreme optimist, looked at that pile of horse manure with a huge smile on his face. And he rolled up his sleeves and he started digging and he said, there's gotta be a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) I think that some of us might think about Jesus in one of those two extremes. Perhaps some of you think of Jesus like an extreme pessimist, he's really hard to please, never quite happy, always has a stern and serious look on his face, and always seems a bit grumpy, talking about wrath and judgment and hell and things like that, rarely eager to extend grace. On the other extreme, perhaps, are some of you that might think of Jesus like an extreme optimist. He's happy-go-lucky, rarely bothered, always smiling, happy, eager to be merciful, to extend grace. Nothing really seems to bother Him, and He's always ready to affirm everyone just as they are. The truth is that Jesus is neither of those extremes. Instead, if you look at the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus always responds perfectly to every situation. Consider a few examples. You remember Jesus outside of the tomb of Lazarus. He knows that Lazarus has died. He knows that he is about to resurrect him. And yet, what does Jesus do when he's confronted with the agony of death? weeps Jesus responds perfectly to sorrow and sadness and death or think of another story when Jesus enters into the temple shortly after that triumphal entry on palm sunday and he goes and he sees the money changers there in the temple and they're they're ripping off the poor and they're turning the temple into a den of thieves and Jesus responds to that how anger, with a whip, with tables being flipped over, driving out the money changers. Jesus responds to injustice, to to blasphemy, to irreverence with righteous anger. Last week in the gospel of Matthew, we watched Jesus respond to a doubting disciple. And he responded with tenderness and at times, firmness. But he responds to John the Baptist with great affection and great love. If you look ahead in Matthew's gospel to our passage for next Sunday in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, you can look there if you've got your Bible open. If not, go ahead and open it now to Matthew chapter 11. But one of the famous passages about Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light at the beginning of the chapter, we see gentle Jesus responding to someone in doubt. And at the end of the chapter, we see gentle Jesus inviting the the weak and the burdened and the tired and the depressed and the discouraged to come to him. And if we only look at passages like that, we might get a kind of imbalanced view of Jesus That's one reason why it's so helpful for us to to walk through books of Scripture together and and go through a section at a time, not skipping over parts, because we find sometimes an image of Jesus that might surprise us. And here in between these two tender pictures of Jesus, we see a very tough, a very stern, a, a very urgent message from Jesus to those who do not believe. How does Jesus respond to unbelief? Before I answer that question, let me remind you of something we said last week about the difference between doubt and unbelief. Alistair McGrath says, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. Another helpful quote from the Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond. He said, Christ distinguished between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinate. So how does Jesus respond to doubt? We saw the answer to that last week. But how does He respond to unbelief? Jesus' response to unbelief is just as perfect as He responds to doubt and everything else. The right response to unbelief, though, looks different than the right response to doubt. The right response to unbelief is an urgent warning. The right response to unbelief is an urgent warning. Before we look at the warning that Jesus gives us in our text this morning, I just want to address the two groups of people that are in this room this morning. Perhaps there are some of of you in this room that are not followers of Jesus, you're not a Christian. You are an unbeliever. I would challenge you to hear and consider the warnings of Jesus. I would plead with you to give me the next 30 or so minutes of your time and give me the most attention that you can spare because I I, I plead with you there is nothing more important than how you will respond to who Jesus is. I would plead with you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you give me your attention for the next few minutes as we look at this text? If you are a follower of Jesus, I would challenge you as well, don't take a nap. You see, we might think, well, this is a passage for unbelievers. I'm a believer. I'm fine. Let me check this one off. I don't need to worry about that. But listen to one of, uh, another warning that comes to us from the book of Hebrews chapter 3, written to Christians. Take care, brothers and sisters, we could say lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, do you see that, Christian? You need to be warned against unbelief too. So from this text and from the words of Jesus... Will you consider with me four warnings about the sin of unbelief? Number one, consider with me the power of unbelief. The power of unbelief. Unbelief is much more powerful than most of us would like to admit. Look at the text, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. Then he, that's referring to Jesus... Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. That word denounce there in the original language, it's used only two other times in Matthew. It's used in Matthew chapter 5 verse 11 to refer to the reviling that we receive when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And it's in, used in Matthew 26 verse 44 to refer to the way that the thieves mocked Jesus while they're being crucified. So when Jesus denounces these cities for their unbelief, he's using a very strong word to describe the rebuke that Jesus is giving these cities for their unrepentance. But, but I want you to notice, look at the verse, look at the reason why or look look at the, the circumstances in which these people did not repent. They did not repent even though they saw most of Jesus' mighty works. Think about that. We have so far seen Jesus give sight to the blind. We've seen him heal the leper, make him clean. We've seen him cause the, the paralytic to walk. We've seen him uh, with a feverish mother in law of Peter touching her and she gets up perfectly. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him heal a woman who was overcome with uh, this disease for over a decade. We've seen incredible power Now we just have seen it in the text of Scripture. But these cities that Jesus is referring to, they actually saw much of these miracles with their own eyes. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that we only have a, a, a tiny sample of the miracles that Jesus performed recorded for us in Scripture There are many people in those cities that might have seen dozens upon dozens of miracles performed by Jesus, and yet they still did not believe. Why? Because unbelief is incredibly powerful. The story is told of a man who was absolutely convinced that he was dead, his wife and kids were frustrated they were concerned they kept telling him you're not dead but he continued to insist that he was dead so they tried telling him look you're, you're not dead you're you're walking you're talking you're breathing how can you possibly be dead and he said i'm just sure that i'm dead so they finally took him to a doctor The doctor pulled out a medical textbook, and uh, he showed him uh, from this medical textbook all this research that demonstrated that dead men don't bleed. He's explaining it to the man. He explains him, dead men don't bleed. Do you see that? Yeah, I see that. Do you understand that? Yeah, I understand that. Dead men don't bleed. And then the doctor took a needle and poked the man in the hand. Blood began to come out. They said, look, you're bleeding. Do you see that? And said, Yeah, I see that. The doctor said, What do you think? And the man said, Well, what do you know? The journal was wrong. Dead men do bleed. (laughs) Do you see the power of unbelief? Do you see how easy it is to become so entrenched in what you believe that you can't even believe the evidence if it were presented to your face? Just last night, I finished a book I've been reading with the girls called The Magician's Nephew. It's one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books. And in that book, there's a villain named Uncle Andrew. And Uncle Andrew gets transported into the world of Narnia. And there he sees these talking beasts, including this lion, Aslan, who can talk. But Uncle Andrew refuses to believe that they can talk. And he so convinces himself that Aslan later says, he could not hear my voice even if he wanted to. That's the power of unbelief. That's the power of unbelief. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, what would it take for you to believe? Is it possible, dear friend, that even if you had that evidence that you so desperately want, that you still wouldn't believe? Is it possible that you could see miracles and still not believe? believe was possible for Jesus' hearers in this story. Many of you know that Jesus once told the story of a rich man and Lazarus. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 16. And in that story, uh, the rich man is in hell. And he says to Abraham send Lazarus, this man who's in heaven, send Lazarus back from the dead and warn my brothers so they don't end up in hell with me. But Abraham said, Luke 16, 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hear me dear friend unbelief is so strong that evidence reason and miracles cannot convince it You might tell yourself I would believe if fill in the blank I'm telling you you're fooling yourself You don't need a miracle or piece of evidence to give you faith to believe that's not the way it works Now, I'm not saying that we should have blind faith and not ask questions, not saying that we shouldn't ask for evidence, not saying that there shouldn't be evidence. Jesus is giving evidence. He's visiting these towns, and He's healing, and He's giving signs of who He is. He's showing these people who He is, but they still did not believe. So the problem with unbelief isn't more evidence. There's something going on in your heart when you won't believe. So consider with me number two, the heart of unbelief. The heart of unbelief. Go back with me to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus asked, to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So Jesus here is giving an example of kids in the marketplace in the first century. Often mom and dad would go shopping in the marketplace and the kids would gather somewhere and they'd play and they'd often have a flute or some sort of instrument. And and the kids in that day, there was two major social events in the first century world. There was weddings and there were funerals. That was pretty much it. No Netflix, no, you know, organized sports. No plays, any of that sort of stuff. It was weddings and funerals. That was your social calendar weddings, funerals. And so imagine all these kids hanging outside the marketplace. Mom and dad are shopping and they're trying to think of a game. And so someone says, Let's play wedding. And they get their flute and they start playing a wedding song. And there's a kid over there in the corner. I don't want to play wedding. I don't want to play that happy game. I don't want to dance. And so the person with the flute says, okay, 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 let's play funeral. And so they begin to play a dirge, a funeral dirge, a lament. And the kid over there in the corner says, I don't want to play funeral either. Jesus says, when you give yourself over to unbelief, you're just like that. Maybe you weren't quite offended until just now. Jesus is essentially saying, unbeliever who refuses to believe you are like the bratty child in the marketplace that says, I don't want to. That's what unbelief is like. You you become hard to please. You've got a heads, I win, tails, you lose sort of mentality. Nothing satisfies you. Nothing is enough. And just in case Jesus's hearers were thinking, well, we're not really like that. Jesus gives them evidence. Look at the text, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, or verse 18. For John came, referring to John the Baptist, neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John's ministry was kind of like funeral mode sort of ministry. Think about John the Baptist. It's kind of weird, right? Right? That's where we get our name from, by the way. So we're kind of weird, Baptists. John is out in the wilderness eating uh, locusts and honey, dressing in camel's hair. He's kind of anti-social, kind of standoffish. He preaches this loud message of repentance. He might remind you of the guy outside the stadium with the repent, the end is near cardboard sign. You know, that's John the Baptist. He's funeral mode sort of ministry. He doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't go to parties. He doesn't do anything like that. He's just this serious, stern guy, and they say he must have a demon. Nobody else would be like that unless they're crazy. Something's wrong with John. Jesus' ministry was quite the opposite. Now, they both preach the good news, but Jesus' ministry was kind of like wedding mode ministry. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' first miracle recorded for us in the Scriptures is recorded at a wedding, at a party, and Jesus is the one that's feasting with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and unsavory types of people, and they say, look at that guy, can you believe him? And Jesus says, you guys can't be pleased. You're not happy with John in his funeral mode kind of ministry. You're not happy with me in my wedding mode kind of ministry. And then he says in verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is essentially saying that the proof is in the pudding. Look at the evidence of John's ministry. John didn't have a demon. Jesus said last week he was greater than all the Old Testament prophets. At John's ministry, many repented of their sins, returned to faith in God. The the wealthy began to share with the poor. Tax collectors stopped cheating their citizens. Soldiers stopped stealing from those who couldn't defend themselves. You look at the fruit of John's ministry. Jesus says that's good fruit. Wisdom is justified by her deeds, well, look at the fruit of Jesus' ministry, that they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. But Jesus wasn't a glutton. Jesus wasn't a drunkard. The scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 3, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus wasn't a sinner. Did he spend time with sinners? Sure. But to invite them to repentance. And look at the fruit of Jesus' ministry. The blind are healed. The lame can walk. The lepers are cleansed. Former tax collectors are now followers of Jesus. And they're hanging out with zealots like Simon, who's another disciple. And Peter and Andrew and James and John, these fishermen turned fishers of men. Look at the evidence of Jesus' ministry. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. The problem was not John or Jesus. The problem was their unbelief. So why didn't they believe? What was at the heart of their unbelief? Here's the simple truth. Often, we don't believe for one single reason, because we don't want to. We don't want to. The problem with the bratty kids in Jesus' parable is not the song that's being played on the flute. The problem is that they want the flute. I want to be in control. And so too, dear friend, that may be what's going on in your heart right now. The problem is not more evidence. The problem is not that you, you just need to be convinced, but it could be for you right now. The problem is that you want the flute You want control. You don't want to give it up to Jesus. That's the heart of unbelief. I saw an example of this in the news recently. Last September, archaeologists discovered evidence that a massive fireball, about a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb at Hiroshima, struck an ancient Middle Eastern city near the Dead Sea. Scientists believe the temperatures rose to 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hot enough to melt an automobile within minutes. To melt an automobile. 2,700 degrees. Uh, Using various dating techniques, they determined that this incredible fireball from heaven destroyed this city about 4,000 years ago. Now, if you know your Bible... You know that around that time, an ancient Middle Eastern city near the Dead Sea was destroyed by fire from heaven. That city was called Sodom, a city that Jesus actually mentions in our text this morning. But if the newspapers were to admit that this massive fireball was evidence of the Bible's truthfulness, here's what they'd have to admit. God is real. Perhaps His word is true. Perhaps He's really holy. Perhaps He really does have wrath against sin, including some of the things that I like to celebrate. Talk about losing control. And so in the newspapers that reported on this story, they said rather than saying rather than saying this might be evidence of the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they said perhaps this is the historical event that inspired the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Talk about willful unbelief. The heart of unbelief. Dear friend and Brother, sister, when it creeps up in your heart, often is simply that I don't want to believe. Is that what's going on in you? If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, why don't I believe? Is there something that you just don't understand I would encourage you, if that's true, if there's things you just don't understand, talk to the person that invited you this morning. I'll be hanging out at the white flag after the service. I'd love to talk to you as well. I just don't understand this or that. That's one thing. But could it be that the reason why you don't believe is simply that you just don't want to? The heart of unbelief. It's good to consider why we don't believe, but Unbelief is too serious to stop there. So consider with me a third warning. Consider the judgment for unbelief. The judgment for unbelief. Go to verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Let's unpack what Jesus is saying here. So he mentions a number of cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Those are three cities where Jesus did the bulk of his ministry all around the Sea of Galilee. You can visit these places today. Tyre and Sidon, those are two Phoenician cities. They were coastal cities uh, known for their immorality. In fact, a certain king of Tyre was so evil in Old Testament times that Ezekiel actually uses him as a picture of Satan himself. These were really bad cities. And Sodom was, of course, the ancient city mentioned in Genesis 19 that was infamous for its debauchery and immorality. Even angels We're not safe in Sodom from the violent, lustful appetites of its citizens. But notice what Jesus is saying. Tyre, Sidon, Sodom. Three horrible cities. They would have repented if they saw what you saw. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian often some of the objections we hear against about Christianity is that Christians are supposed to be about morality and we're often immoral people. Listen to me. Hear me very carefully. Christianity is not first and foremost about morality. Every other religion is. Every other religion is about being a good person. And if you're good enough, you can earn the favor of the gods. Christianity has none of that. Christianity says, you're so horrible, you couldn't if you tried. In fact, the harder you try, the digger hole you dig. But God loved you so much, he sent his son to live a sinless life and die on a cross, bearing the wrath of God in your place. And rising from the dead three days later, Christianity is first and foremost not good advice about how to be moral, but good news about what Jesus did for you. So listen to me, it should make perfect sense in your mind, Christian, that a moral place like Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum could in fact go down to the depths of hell. Because we are not saved by our morality. Uh, we've been here in Pocosin for six years. Pocosin is a very moral, conservative place. Holly and I joked when we first visited here in the summer of 2016. It was, you remember, the summer of 2016, there was a big election on the horizon. We came from an urban center where we saw tons of Bernie yard signs. Remember that? Back in 2016, a different world, it seems. We came to Pacwasan, Virginia, and we saw more Trump signs than we'd ever seen in our lives. This was a conservative place. This was a right-wing place. This was a moral place. This was an upstanding place, just like Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. And Jesus says, your morality is Your conservativeness, your good works, will win you nothing on Judgment Day. That's what he's saying. This ought to be sobering for us. I think there's a principle in this text that ought to be very, very sobering for every single person in this room. Here's the principle The more access you have to truth, the greater the accountability you have to obey it. I want to sound like Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. With great access comes great accountability. Think about that for a second. The greater access you have to truth... The more accountable you will be on Judgment Day. How much access do you have to truth, Christian? How many of these do you have in your home? More than one? How many Christian books are on your shelves? How many translations of the Bible can you open on your app? How many good Christian podcasts can you access on your phone or tablet? How many Christian websites can you visit? How many Sunday school classes have you attended? How many sermons have you heard? How much discipleship training have you received? How many small groups have you been in? Do you see the weight of information, of access to truth that we have received? And Jesus says, I will hold you accountable for all that you have heard. And if you get all of that and you still reject me, let me just say a word to our young people in this room. Listen, I know that some of you are only here because mom and dad make you come here. I'm glad that mom and dad make you come. Mom and dad, keep it up. Listen to me. Do not harden your heart to the things of God. Do not. This place is the most dangerous place you can be, young person, if you hear God's word over and over and over again and continue to reject it. Do not reject him. Don't reject him. John MacArthur writes that indifference is a heinous form of unbelief. It so completely disregards God that he is not even an issue worth arguing about. He is not taken seriously enough to criticize. Is that you, dear friend? It could be that you hear this and you hear Jesus talk about judgment day or hell. You say, well, that's, that's why I can't believe in Jesus. I can't believe that a God of love would send anyone to hell. Listen to me. You cannot have love Without wrath, you can't. If you love justice, you will hate injustice, won't you? You, you will. If you love truth, you will hate lies. And, and the, the more passionate the love, the greater the wrath against that which threatens what you love. So parents, if you love your kids, you will hate and oppose anything that would harm them. And you should. Because you can't have love without hatred against that which harms the thing that you love. If you want a God of love, you must also have a God of wrath. Because you cannot have love without wrath towards anything which threatens that which God loves Another thing to consider in this text that's often discussed is Jesus saying that there are degrees of suffering in hell. Notice the text. Jesus clearly draws a comparison. He says, It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I think Jesus is clearly teaching that with greater access to the truth comes greater judgment when we reject it. That's a sobering, scary thought. Now, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that hell is, the temperature is a little bit hotter for those who grew up in church? Maybe. Or it might mean, maybe it's something like what I've experienced through the years as a fan of Cleveland Baseball. It'll make sense in a second. 1995, 1997, 2016, my beloved Cleveland Indians, they call them the Guardians now, but they were the Indians in those days, went to the World Series. And the closer they got to winning it all and losing, the more it hurt. Maybe that's what it's like for you, friend, on Judgment Day When you realize how close you were, how many times you heard, how much access and opportunity you have, and yet you still rejected him. Either way, you're in great danger if you reject Jesus. Now, if we end here, that's a pretty sobering. And not a lot of hope end to this text. So I want to consider one final truth from our text this morning. Would you look at me, look at with me the solution to unbelief? The solution to unbelief. Now there are there is hope in two words that Jesus uses in this stern and harsh text. The first word that he uses that's filled with hope, if you'll see it, is the word woe. You see it in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That word woe, one commentator writes, suggests both anger and lamentation, both pity and doom. It announces impending judgment. Woe, for it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Yet the woe implies that there is still time to repent. The end is almost, but not quite here. Woe calls out judgment, yet it offers a shred of hope for the penitent, end quote. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? Why even say woe to these cities? Because in that word of woe, there is a welcome to all who will repent. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, it is no accident that you're here this morning. Jesus in his kindness has led you to be here to hear this today. Yes, it's a word of judgment, but it's also a word of invitation that you would respond to the warnings that Jesus issues here and you would believe. What is the response? The second word that gives us hope in this text is the word repent. Notice verse 20, he warns these cities because they did not repent. Verse 21 says, these other cities, Tyre and Sidon, would have repented. The word repent literally just means to turn away. You're going one direction and you, you make an about face. And that is, for some of you, that's your life right now. You're living like the children in the marketplace. You're living for you. You want it your way. You want the flute. You want control. And Jesus says, repent. Turn away from that and turn to me. And By the way, you don't have to have it all together to do that. Because Jesus says later on, we'll look at this next Sunday, but come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You can be totally weighted down by guilt and shame and suffering. And Jesus says, that's okay. That's the only kind of people that I call to myself. Turn away from you and turn to me. That's what Jesus says. That's the invitation. But here's the problem. You cannot do it by yourself. Martin Luther famously said, as no one can give himself faith, neither can he take away his unbelief. So if you look at the text, Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God must give you the ability to repent and believe. Would you ask him for that? You can ask him for that right now. In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller tells the story about a missionary trying to reach prostitutes in Korea with the gospel. And he's talking to these ladies and they are just weighted down by self-loathing, by shame, by guilt. And he comes and he tells them good news. God is a God of mercy and grace. God is a God who forgives sinners. God is a God who welcomes the broken and the outcast. And no matter how many times he tried to tell them this, these women just couldn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. And so finally, he decided to take a slightly different approach. And he said to these ladies, God is a king. He's a king who has all authority over everyone and everything. And God chooses to save some people. Now God, because he's holy, because he's massive, because he has authority, because he's king, all who reject him will be punished. And these ladies said, yes, that makes sense. I understand that. Of course, yes, people in my life who have authority, they punish those who disobey them too. We understand that. But God, in his grace and mercy, chooses some to be a part of his family. And those ladies looked at that missionary and they said, well, how do I know if he chooses me? The missionary said, if you believe the good news of what he's done for you. And if you want to follow him, then he chose you. That would be my challenge to you in this room this morning. Do you believe the good news of what Jesus has done? Do you want to follow him? If you do, then today you can be welcomed into the family of God. And so we who are God's people, let me conclude with a warning again from Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And let this be our challenge this week. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your great love. Thank you for sending Jesus to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, and to rise from death so that whoever believes can have eternal life. And Father, we pray for those in this room that don't know Jesus, that they would turn to him right now. Right in their seats, as we sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy. I would pray that they would come. They would come to you. They'd cry out to you and find salvation in Jesus. And for we who are your people, may we exhort each other so that we will not fall away from this great and glorious God. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.